Will you please stand and turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 3. This is going to be our New Testament reading. And then from there we'll go to our text in Psalm 53. Romans 3, starting at verse 9. Pray with me again. Our Father in heaven, um, the scriptures are so important. As we saw this morning, they're the only final rule for faith and uh, life for us as Christians, for the church. And Lord, we're so thankful for the authority of the scriptures, that they're true and that we can trust them. Um, They're so necessary for us, Lord. We can't do without them. Lord, they're clear, but sometimes there are things that are hard to understand. We need the Holy Spirit to help us to understand your word tonight. Please speak powerfully to us in your word and help us to see Christ and his goodness and his gospel as we read it together. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 28. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all, for... We have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now, we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law... No human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith, apart from the works of the law. Amen. Now let's flip back to Psalm 53.
to the choir master, according to Mahalath, a maskil of David. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt, doing abominable iniquity. There is none who does good. God looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all fallen away. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Have those who work evil no knowledge, who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon God? There they are in great terror where there is no terror. For God scatters the bones of him who encamps against you. You put them to shame, for God has rejected them. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When God restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice. Let Israel be glad. Amen. You may be seated. I wonder if you've ever had the experience of hearing a recording of your own voice uh, and thought, is that what I really sound like? I actually just had that experience today. I was taking the, the audio from Sunday school and putting it on my computer. And I checked to make sure what the file, what that was the right file. And I thought, oh, sounds weird. Um, we're used to hearing our voices resonating in our own skulls. And so it sounds different than when you hear it played back to you, not through your own skull. Um, and if you ever had that experience, you may have also wondered, are there, are there other parts of my life or of the way that I see myself that are different perhaps from the way other people see me, observe me? Um, in fact, this is an important part of, of maturity. Sometimes we call it self-awareness, which we tend to lack as little children, maybe growing over time, hopefully. Um, we shouldn't be self-conscious, you know, always thinking, always thinking about how others are perceiving us. That's unhealthy. It's immature. It's self-centered. Uh, but there is value in being self-aware and thinking, how do my words and actions impact others? How is this going to come across? Things like that. And sometimes we're not very good at that sort of thing. Sometimes we have uh, blind spots, and it can be very helpful to us uh, to get an outside perspective outside perspective, to have somebody who's willing to tell us from outside, did you know, were you aware when you do this or say that, you should really think about this, because I don't think it comes across the way you think it does. So the Word of God is the ultimate outside perspective, an outside perspective on the whole world on all of humanity, and on you and your heart and your thoughts and your words and your actions in particular. And it tells us things about ourselves um, that maybe, if we're honest, we should have known, but perhaps we didn't want to admit them. Perhaps there are areas where we are not spiritually self-aware. But what God does is, in his mercy... He holds up to us the, the, his word kind of as a mirror 
And he shows us ourselves in a way we don't naturally see ourselves or don't naturally want to see ourselves. He says, look carefully and see yourself as I see you. And this psalm, Psalm 53, gives us what I'm going to call tonight a God's eye view of the whole human race. When God looks down from heaven, what does he see? And how is that different from the way in our sinful self-deception we naturally want to see ourselves? And to answer those questions, we're going to look at three things tonight about this psalm. First will be God's sovereign assessment in verses 1 through 3. Second will be God's sovereign distinction in verses 4 and 5. And then third is going to be God's sovereign salvation in verse 6. So God's sovereign assessment, God's sovereign distinction, and God's sovereign salvation. So first, God's sovereign assessment. When you read that very familiar verse 1, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. The first thing that might come to mind for you is the um, kind of bald, very outright atheism that you see at various places uh, in contemporary times. You might think of uh, some of the famous writers like Christopher Hitchens, Richard Dawkins, these very vocal proponents of atheism, of the um, belief that there is no God, rejection of belief in the existence of God. Um, and, of course, this psalm <clears throat> is uh, quite helpful in thinking about a proper Christian response to athe- that kind of outright atheism. It gives us God's sovereign assessment of that kind of view of the world, that it is folly. It's not just wrong, but it is foolish in the face of God's inescapable revelation of himself in the natural world, in the human heart, in the image of God, in man, not to mention scripture, all these things we talked about in Sunday school this morning. In the face of all of that, for someone to maintain against the evidence, against that forceful witness of reality, that no God, in fact, exists, that's not just wrong. It is it's foolish. It's folly. It's the fool who says in his heart there is no God. There's a lot more on this in Romans 1, which we could go into in great length. We did recently in our apologetic Sunday school. I'm not going to actually do that now uh, because I want to bring out quite a different dimension of this same idea when it says the fool says in his heart there is no God. This verse and this psalm are about much more, really, than just the folly of atheism. They include that. But more than that, this psalm is about, let's see if you can get this, the atheism of folly. Or we could say the atheism of disobedience, of willful rebellion against God. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, it's, it's one thing to say that, well, it's foolish to deny the existence of God, and that's true. Let's think about it the other way around. Whenever we act foolishly, whenever we act, use some other words from the psalm, corruptly, whenever we do abominable iniquity, whenever we sin in any way, in fact, we are, by our actions in that moment at least, saying, there is no God. You may have heard people use the phrase practical atheism. 
um, which I think is a, a good phrase. Uh, when we choose our desires, our cravings, our, uh, our judgment, our way of thinking, we choose those things over the law of God, what, what he says is true, what he says is right. We choose those things over love for God. We choose them over listening to God, over trusting and obeying God. What we're doing is practically we are living as though God is not there. Or if he is, then I don't care if he's there because I'm just going to do what I'm going to do just as though he wasn't. Just as though he wasn't. One of the key teachings of this psalm is that that attitude, that folly, which really amounts to atheism, whether we call ourselves atheists or not, that rejection of God in our thoughts and choices, that is actually the universal condition of all humankind. In other words, it's true of everybody, naturally. That's our, our natural states, the way we come into the world. It's so widespread as to take in the entire human race. There is none, verse 1 says, who does good. None. Now, of course, that's not the way people tend to see themselves, right? It's not the way people tend to assess themselves. In general, uh, people tend to have a fairly high degree of confidence in their own um, virtue, their own kind of... We tend to think of ourselves as pretty good people. That's the point. We're pretty good at uh, kind of justifying ourselves, justifying our actions, explaining why we have done certain things that it's really okay, or at least not that bad. Um, we may be aware of certain shortcomings, um, good at finding explanations for them, though, uh, finding excuses, finding maybe problems in our, in our upbringing, problems in the ways we've been treated, various disadvantages that we might have had, to explain to ourselves, no matter how bad we might be or what we might have done, we're, we're good at finding maybe someone else who, who's even worse, somebody we can compare ourselves to and say, well, at least I'm better than him or I'm better than her. Uh, it's not, it's not that, like I did that really bad thing that I haven't done. And see, what this results in and what it, what it shows is a problem with our spiritual self-awareness. Our spiritual self-awareness we were talking about earlier. What we do is we overestimate our own virtue and we underestimate just how serious our sin really is. We overestimate our virtue, we underestimate the seriousness of our sin. But see, what this psalm does, again, this is very gracious of God to give this to us, is it, it just, starting in verse 2, it just melts away all of those disguises that we try to put on. Under the scrutiny of the Lord. As we're treated here to this God's eye view on the human race, including ourselves. So it says, God looks down, verse 2. God looks down. This reminds me of the story of the Tower of Babel. So the Tower of Babel is sort of about where um, a few generations after the flood, all of the, the, the newly kind of multiplying uh, uh, extended family of Noah, uh, there's, there's many people now, and they decide, we don't want to be scattered over the face of the earth. We don't want to be fruitful. We don't want to fill the earth like God told us to. What we're going to do is we're going to all get together, combine our resources Build a great big city, and in the center of that city is going to be a tower 
that reaches up to heaven. We are going to climb our way to heaven. We're going to create a stairway to heaven, if you will, by the combined power of human might and ingenuity. We're going to build this tower of Babel to get up to God. And in response to that folly, to that pride, that hubris of the human race, remember what it says in Genesis 11.5. It says, And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower, which the children of man had built. They were saying, we're going to build this tower all the way up to God. And there's this kind of irony as, uh, the, as Moses in Genesis kind of smiles, says, God had to come down to see that tower that they had built to try to get to him. Here it's in this similar mode. God looks down from heaven on the human race. And he gives here his sovereign assessment of what he sees from his heavenly throne. Are there any who understand? Are there any who seek after God? And the report, of course, is not very encouraging. It says they've all fallen away. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. And if that sounds familiar from some other part of the Bible, it's because we read earlier in Romans 3. Uh, Paul picks up on this verse when he's making his argument that all human beings, Jew and Gentile alike, doesn't matter, either one, we all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And this is why, Paul argues there, we can never, ever hope for a salvation through our good works, through anything that good that we could do. We can never be good enough to please God because when he looks down from heaven, this is what our works look like to him. He sees us the way we really are. And left to ourselves, this is the direction we will always go. This sin problem taints the entire human race. And it touches everyone. We simply can't escape it. We can try to deny it. That very denial is simply one facet of our folly. People talk about trying to put lipstick on a pig. It doesn't really help. All that you can try to say, well, I'm not really that bad, but it just shows all the more that that folly of our thoughts and our words actions of rebellion, which really amount to a declaration of independence from God. That's what we're doing when we sin. It was a declaration of independence from God. We are saying in our hearts, whether or not we say it aloud, whether or not we're even fully conscious of it, the fact is our actions speak louder than words. We are saying, in essence, there is no God. I want you to understand, there are very many religious people, very religious people, who live their lives as practical atheists. Okay? There are many professing Christians. There are many people in the church who live their lives as practical atheists. And even when that attitude doesn't define us, even for true Christians, um, it's still a danger for us all the time to dabble in, to, to share, to borrow um, for a time that way of thinking. And that is indeed what is happening. Anytime that we decide that we care more about what we want 
more about what we think, what we wish, than what God says. So even for a true Christian, practical atheism is a constant temptation and a constant danger. Well, this has been pretty bleak so far. Intentionally bleak. That's really the point of these first three verses. But this psalm as a whole is not a bleak psalm. We're about to turn the corner here. So take heart. Stick with me. Let's go on here to verse 4. Um, uh, so we've lumped all human beings together as corrupt and godless. Bad news. But that's not the end of the poetic picture here. In verse 4, we start to see a difference being pointed out. A great difference between two groups of people within that one humanity. This sovereign distinction is being made here between, on the one hand, those who work evil, and on the other, David uses this phrase, my people. God is speaking of my people. Have those who work evil no knowledge, who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon God? Okay, and so the point here, out of the, that mass of sinful humanity, apparently, God has set apart for himself a people. They're sinful, like all the others, and yet, somehow, they are his in a special way. This special way where he is showing this very grave concern for their well-being. He sees that they are being harmed. He's seeing that he sees that they're being devoured even by the people around them. And he takes notice of this. And he is going to come swiftly to their defense. Uh, this is a good place to bring up something that I didn't mention earlier. It's, it's important for understanding this psalm, though. And that is, um, when you, if you read through the book of Psalms, uh, you get to Psalm 53 and you think, wait a second, I feel like I've heard this before. Uh, psalm 53 is very similar, almost identical, actually. To Psalm 14. Okay, they're almost the same thing. Um, in Psalm, uh, but there are a few minor differences along the way, and the most significant one is in verse five, which is where we've come now. So, in Psalm 14, when you get to this point in in the in the Psalm, David prays. Um, he says, "There they are. Uh, there they are in great terror, for God is with the generation of the righteous." You would shame the plans of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. It's quite different from verse 5 that you find here. In Psalm 53, it says, There they are in great terror, where there is no terror, for God scatters the bones of him who encamps against you. You put them to shame, for God has rejected him. Okay, so him who encamps against you, that's the key here for understanding the difference. What, what David is talking about here is not just the general oppression of the righteous by the wicked, or by the, of the poor by the powerful, like it is in Psalm 14. That's what he's talking about in Psalm 14. But here you get a different image. It's a military scene. It's a siege, uh, perhaps depicting one nation against another, an invader perhaps threatening Israel as the covenant people. Uh, Derek Kidner, commentator, points this out, and he suggests that what's happening here is that uh, Psalm 14 is being kind of ad- applied, is being adapted in a new way, for a different kind of circumstances. So if Psalm 14 is more focused on David's personal experience as an individual over against other individuals, well, Psalm 53 is geared more towards Israel's experience as a nation, as a covenant community over against other nations. In both cases, though, 
God's response is sort of parallel. It's the same God doing the same kind of thing in both cases. God, what is he going to do? He's going to expose the folly of those who have, have lived as though he is not there or as though he doesn't care. He's going to show that he is there, that he does care, and that he does care especially about his people whom he loves so much that he is going to come to their defense and he is personally going to defeat, even obliterate, their enemies. Going back to verse 4, uh, notice how that theme of folly continues. Have those who work evil no knowledge? Don't they get it? They're saying it's, it's just foolish. It's nonsensical to set yourself up as an opponent of God. Why would you do this? It doesn't make any sense. Because when you do that, you will always find, in the end, um, and as we saw this morning, you're going to see God looking at you and saying, I am against you. That was the theme from Nahum 2 this morning. So you put them to shame, verse 5 concludes, for God has rejected them. God has said, I am against you to these people. But he is for his own people. Um, Before we go on to the last section, I just wanted to comment in passing on the first couple lines of verse 5. Um, point out that there's a, a context there for those words where it says, there they are in great terror where there is no terror. Um, if you were to go back to Leviticus chapter 26, I know you read Leviticus 26 every day, right? No, it's one of those passages, though, that lists the covenant curses uh, that go with covenant rebellion and then the blessings that go with covenant obedience. And one of the things it says in verse 37 is that if Israel disobeys, one of the consequences is going to be defeat in battle. And it says, Their soldiers shall stumble over one another as if to escape a sword, though none pursues. It's the same imagery of fleeing, um, of of being in great terror where there is no terror, fleeing even though nobody's chasing you. You see the foolishness in that image. How silly that seems to be running away when nobody's chasing you. Uh, the same imagery comes up in Proverbs chapter 28, verse 1, where it says, The wicked flee when no one pursues, but the righteous are bold as a lion. To what could be more foolish than that, running away when nobody's chasing you? And imagine how foolish you would feel when you realize the truth. There was no one back there after all. It is a consequence, one of the many consequences in the psalm, of that arch folly that began all of this, that atheism, whether in word or or merely in deed, of choosing to live as though there is no God. There's an example of this, by the way, in Bible history. In 2 Kings 7, uh, there's an army of the the Syrians, not the Assyrians, but the Syrians. They've surrounded the city of Samaria, uh, commanded by their king, Ben-Hadad. And it says there in 2 Kings 7 that the Lord made the army of the Syrians hear the sound of chariots and of horses the sound of a great army, so that they said to one another, Behold, the king of Israel is hired against us, the kings of the Hittites and the kings of Egypt, to come against us. So they fled away in the twilight and abandoned their tents, their horses, and their donkeys, leaving the camp as it was, and fled for their lives. And uh, you remember it was those four lepers who... Uh, uh, who discovered all this wealth that had been abandoned and they were able to go and tell the good news to the king and to the people inside the besieged city that there the Syrians were in great terror where there was no terror. That's a great historical kind of illustration of what this looks like. 
And really what God was doing there is exactly what he promises to do in this psalm. He was making a sovereign distinction between his people Israel and those who were encamped against them. Right? That's what the Lord was doing. And this psalm is expressing the hope and the prayer that that is what God will always do because that's the kind of God God is. That he will always come to his people's defense. He will always judge their enemies in the end and rescue them. As the psalm concludes, though, you get the sense that that's not necessarily the way things feel at this particular moment in Israel's life. They are hoping in that promise and that steady aspect of the character of God. But what are they, what's going on for them right now in verse 6? This is expressing not just confidence in God's salvation, it's expressing the need, the dire need for God's sovereign salvation to break in, to intervene, to deliver God's people from the opposition of these, these godless and corrupt and, and this, this wicked world around them. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When God restores the fortunes of his people, then let, Israel, let Jacob rejoice, let Israel be glad. But you know, as we come to that last verse, it kind of raises a big question, right? A question that maybe is, has already been lingering ever since verse 4 when we first saw that sovereign distinction emerge within that mass of sinful humanity. And it's the question, why? Why should God do any of this for Israel, for his people, for us? Why should God save them? Why should God restore anybody's fortunes if we're all part of that group that verses 1 through 3 describe? When God looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God, he finds that the answer is no. We've all fallen away. We've together become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Doesn't that include Israel? And doesn't that include even the great King David himself? Surely it does. It includes every one of us. And so do you see then how this really deepens the urgency and the depth of that cry in verse 6? Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. See, in, in a regret if we've given that impression so far, but you must understand now, this psalm is not here to cultivate in us an, an arrogance, uh, setting ourselves up over above other kinds of people, to, to cultivate a kind of us versus them elitism among God's people, where we, where we start to uh, get in the habit of that Pharisee in Jesus' parable who's always thanking God that he's not like other people. Instead of the tax collector says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. The psalm teaches us to find us right there, like the tax collector did, right there, in the, right there among that corrupt mass of hopeless people who really don't have any reason at all to expect that God should treat us any differently from anybody else than any of the other enemies that he describes in verse 5. Why is it that our bones shouldn't just be scattered in utter defeat? Because that's what we deserve. If things are to be different for us than for anyone else, 
got to admit, it's not going to be because we're so different from them. It's not. The difference is not going to be found in us. The difference is only going to be found in the Lord, in His goodness, His righteousness, and His mercy and grace. The difference comes because although His law can only condemn us for our disobedience, our atheistic folly, something else has happened. This is what we read in Romans 3, right? That now... The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there's no distinction, he says, making the same point Psalm 53 is making. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. None of us can make it there on our own. And yet there's a a distinction too, isn't there? A sovereign distinction there in Romans 3 where we are justified that's forgiven and accepted by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. God put forward as a propitiation by his blood, that million-dollar theological word meaning that sacrifice that satisfies the wrath of God, that turns away the wrath of God, that's received, Paul says, by faith. So in the, in the Lord Jesus Christ, what he's saying, God has answered the prayer of verse 6 of this psalm. That's what God did in the Lord Jesus. He was answering this prayer that salvation would come out of Zion and that God would restore the fortunes of his people. See, it's in the Lord Jesus that we can rejoice and be glad as the children of God who have been saved out of a lost and dying world. And now we're charged with going into that world, going into it and offering to that Mass of dying, lost sinners. That same salvation we found through Jesus. Do you see then, how this psalm, Psalm 53, gives to us a God's eye view to help us become more spiritually self-aware. And so if we're kind of complacent in our sin, if we've just been kind of trucking along through life comfortable with living practically as though there is no God, then this psalm is here to shake us up. It's here to show us God's point of view, show us what he sees when he looks down from heaven upon us. See, on the other hand, at the same time, if we're discouraged, if we're despondent in our sin, if we can actually see our guilt pretty clearly and we feel stuck. We feel like there's nothing but the condemnation and the helplessness that sin has brought into our lives. See, the psalm is also here equally to give us hope. That hope that God promises to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. The hope of God's sovereign salvation breaking in to give us a different identity. To make us no longer just a drop in the bucket of that corrupt and lost human race. But sovereignly to distinguish us, take us out, make us something different, make us his beloved children. And to help us to grow more and more away from that sin that used to define us. And grow more and more into that family resemblance of his beloved son, Jesus. So let Jacob rejoice. Let Israel be glad in that 
tonight. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we're thankful for this psalm. We're thankful for your sovereign grace. The way you haven't treated us the way our sins deserved. We deserve just to be left there, right, in the same pot with the rest of the lost and dying world. And you have called us out of darkness and into the light. You have offered to us the free and full forgiveness of our sins because Jesus died on the cross to save us and to take that penalty we deserved and to rise from the dead in victory. We're so thankful for him. We're so thankful for your grace. And Lord, we ask that you would indeed protect us, that you would defend us, that you would um, keep us safe from our enemies. Pray that salvation would continue to come out of Zion, um, salvation that only you can give. And Lord, we pray that you would please help us day by day and moment by moment to live as though you are really there, as though you really see. Stop contradicting that in our lives and our choices, our thoughts, our words, our actions. So that in our lives we would never say, whether in word or in deed, that there is no God. Keep us, protect us from that folly that comes so naturally to us, Lord. And make us more like your beloved Son, Jesus. We ask this in his name. Amen.